0: Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our Insights Series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more Insight Series updates and as always, like, subscribe and share.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to another Sibylline Podcast. I'm Eloise Scott, and today I'm joined with Benedict Manzin and Edie Lipton, our Sub-Saharan Africa experts, and we'll be discussing the situation today Um, in Somalia. So Somalia has obviously been in a state of, of prolonged political instability since elections, which were due to be held in December 2020, but obviously were delayed. This has obviously raised fears about the stability of the Somali government and a potential resumption of broader conflict within the country. So, Edie, perhaps starting with you, how has this situation developed and where are we currently at in this process?
2: So, so far, 298 legislators have taken the oath of office following the elections for the parliamentary chambers, the upper and the lower house. But the choice of about 30 MPs has not yet been concluded because of disputes over various issues, including the eligibility of candidates. These members are chosen by delegates appointed by clan elders and members of civil society who are selected by regional state officials. The upper house is set to vote on the 26th of April and the lower house on the 27th of April to appoint their respective leaders. President Mohammed Abdullahi Mohammed has remained in office despite the expiry of his mandate in February 2021. The country failed to meet its previous election deadline of the 25th of February due to states failing to hold elections because of disputes over where the elections should take place and who the electors should be amidst concerns that both President Mohammed and his opponents were trying to rig the elections. Previously, the extension of President Mohammed's mandate last April prompted protests in Mogadishu and fighting between security forces loyal to the government and those who oppose the president's extension of power. Further election delays threaten not only to once again raise the prospect of a constitutional crisis as seen in April, but also disrupt an agreement with the IMF support programme after the IMF is due to review its programme in mid-May, which will automatically terminate if a new administration is not in place to endorse the agreed reforms. Thanks, Edie And Ben, do you have any other thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing, now that the parliament is sitting, there is obviously a pressure to proceed with the presidential elections because the way it works in in Somalia is that the president is elected by parliament. so So throughout this entire period, Despite the fact that many in the opposition wanted to get rid of Muhammad Abdullahi Muhammad, they couldn't because there wasn't a parliament to conduct new elections and they were pushing for him to step down unilaterally, probably a lot of back and forth, including an attempt by the president to extend his term indefinitely and sort of dismiss the need for a parliament. So now obviously there's quite considerable pressure to move this process along, but as, as Edie pointed out, the parliament I- isn't fully in place. It has a majority of its members, but there are still outstanding parliamentarians. The issue now is whether or not because of this upcoming deadline, you know, uh, the IMF is saying you know, by mid-May we need a government stay and commits to these economic reforms. And if we don't have that, then, then our agreement will lapse automatically and engenders you know, billions of dollars in budgetary aid assistance. There's a push and a feeling that maybe, you know, with it being likely that these parliamentary elections, you know, these few outstanding elections will be held up. I mean, basically, one of the key areas where this is going on is the ghetto region, which is in the wider you know, Jubaland state. And there is a concern that the government has deployed, or rather the president has deployed a lot of his loyal militia to that area. And he may be attempting to manipulate the electors in that region to ensure that his candidates get voted on. Because the ghetto regional government is specifically the Jubaland government, which kind of administers that whole area and is quite opposed to. Muhammad Abdullahi Muhammad, because they're concerned about his attempt to manipulate that vote, that vote could be stalled for a prolonged period. And so there is a move among some within, within the small Fiscal community, particularly among opponents of M- Muhammad Abdullahi Muhammad, to hold a vote now on the grounds that Parliament is quorate. It's got sufficient members to have a quorum and therefore it, it should be able to vote legitimately. The issue there, of course, is that if a vote does take place, without all the parliamentarians being present, then there is grounds for whoever the losing candidate is going to be. At this point, it sort of looks like it may be Muhammad Abdullah Muhammad, to claim that the vote was completely illegitimate and to reject the results and really driving the likelihood that there will be fighting between militias loyal to him and those loyal to his, you know, the regional governments and the prime minister you know, really threatening the stability of Somalia and really threatening the stability of the Somali government if, you know, the president just refuses to step down because he says the vote's illegitimate.
1: Thanks, Ben. And so obviously I know one of the issues that, that you two are following very closely is uh, trends relating to al-Shabaab. So where does that group fit into this story? And, you know, obviously you, you talked about the instability that's arising from the current situation. How does al-Shabaab stand to benefit from this? Perhaps either you can start us off on that.
2: Absolutely. So during the election period so far, we've seen al-Shabaab intensify their operations, particularly in recent weeks in an attempt to further destabilise the election process and capitalise on the power vacuum created by inter clan conflict and the breakdown of intra-governmental cooperation. This was seen most recently on the 18th of April when the group claimed responsibility for a mortar fire attack on parliament, which had injured at least six people during a parliamentary session. Parliamentarians were set to set the dates for votes to appoint the presidents of the two legislative chambers and further al-Shabaab attacks could disrupt efforts and cause further delays to the electoral process. Al-Shabaab have also launched attacks in attempts to maximise disputes over where elections and the associated events should take place. In March, for example, al-Shabaab launched an attack on the Banadir camp within the fortified Helene district in close proximity to the international airport where the previous presidential elections have taken place. Al-Shabab therefore likely hopes to utilise the attacks to maximise security concerns and further disrupt the election process.
3: Yeah, I think it's really important to note that any opportunity to delay the vote, any opportunity to increase concerns within uh, the Somali government about you know, when the president will be elected, who is president now, they're going to take that opportunity because... The way in which the Somali security forces work means that they're very vulnerable to political instability. Essentially, Somalia's armed forces are made up of various, well, primarily, I mean, obviously, we have have specialised units that have been trained by the US, but by and large, the majority of Somalia's armed forces are comprised of clan militias, which are loyal to the heads of those clans. And so where you have instances where the president is at odds with regional governments, with opposition candidates, so on and so forth. We have seen the cooperation between these armed forces break down. So there have been instances, for example, where Mohammed has sought to advance the career of one of his allies in in the region's mayoral elections and so on. And so he'll send in the the troops, federal forces who are from his clan, and they have entered into conflict, particularly in Jubaland. With local forces of the opposing plan, even though they're both technically uh, national armed forces, did fighting break out between them during moments of political tension? And so, obviously, that really heats uh, counterinsurgency efforts, particularly as countries like the US have withdrawn their ground forces; they're not such a presence in Somalia anymore. I mean, there's evidence that that's changing; that, that you know that they are looking to increase air support for for the Somali army. But the point is, the bulk of the troops doing the fighting, and uh, you know, when, once they're distracted fighting each other gives al-Shabaab greater room to manoeuvre, greater ability to influence local communities, exert control over rural areas in particular, enabling it to build up the necessary strength they need needs to conduct attacks in Mogadishu, challenge government control of key areas and major transport routes and all that. So yeah, I mean, so that's really what al-Shabaab seeks to do at the moment, to draw out this political crisis as long as possible, increase the likelihood that the candidates reach some sort of breaking point where they are basically forced to use their own militias to advance their political claims as a way of reducing pressure on themselves and creating the necessary anarchy for them to develop and expand.
1: Thanks Ben, so obviously you spoke a a bit there about al-Shabaab and how it's going to try and draw out the political instability for its own ends, but do you think there are a you know, broader implications of this spike in activity and and any gains that they may be able to make from this situation.
2: Because disruptions to the elections are likely to drive a constitutional crisis and inter clan warfare across the country, counter insurgency efforts will be undermined and that's what Al-Shabaab will capitalise on to expand their territorial gains. And that's likely to elevate threats across the wider region. The group's expansion of its operations will increase the number of attempted attacks in Kenya's northern border counties, In January, for example, we saw Al-Shabaab launch two attacks in Kenya's northern Lamu counties. Delays to elections will therefore elevate threats to the overground movement of goods and the risk of kidnapping, particularly for NGO staff in Kenya's northern border communities. Also, cuts to IMF funding due to the electoral delays will likely exacerbate economic challenges which Will likely compound the worsening famine the country faces the worst drought since the 1980s and the security crisis and this will likely drive an exodus of Somalians from the country which could exacerbate instability across the whole of the Horn of Africa.
3: Yeah I think he's absolutely right to point out I think mostly the threats that this poses to Kenya because we we know that al-Shabaab has you know demonstrated over previous years an ability to recruit locally even in the recent months and over the past few years, they do conduct regular attacks, specifically into the border counties in Kenya, you know, frequently targeting military assets and police force, mines long vehicles, attacks on police stations, primarily this sort of activity, but occasionally we have seen them kidnap NGOs active in, in, in these counties, missionaries, you know, people often identify as ideological opponents. But of course, we also know that they have, in previous years, you know, conducted these you know these quite spectacular, high-profile attacks uh, designed to attract media attention and demonstrate their willingness to go after uh, what they regard as being you know you know bastions of, of kind of Western ideology, you know, major hotel chains, you know, shopping malls, these sorts of things. As we can see them build up their strength in Somalia, provided that they are able to properly exploit this situation in in the country, then there is a risk that they may develop the capacity and develop the you know develop the space they need to, to attempt to organize these larger attacks now you know the caveats of that being of course uh, Kenya has developed its counter-terror capabilities quite significantly and improved security around uh, many of its major cities so you know I, I think it'll be harder for Al-Shabaab to do that but obviously with increased capabilities comes that potential that they may attempt these these sorts of attacks again another one to note I think where you know so historically al has been less successful but because of recent circumstances, there may be some space for expansion, is, is Ethiopia. Ethiopia are currently dealing with a prolonged conflict with the Tigray People's Liberation Forces, currently facing rebellion in one of its larger regions, Aromia, and facing also, you know, as Edie kind of mentioned, uh, the famine in Somalia, that's also taking place in southern and central areas of Ethiopia. And so th- th- there is potentially space there uh, and enough instability for Somalia to potentially expand and conduct attacks in Ethiopia. Now that hasn't happened, despite the conflicts having been going on for well over a year at this point. It's possible that that won't happen, but certainly if its capabilities have increased, there is increasing potential for a move north, and for a move particularly into Ethiopia's Somali region, where feasibly Al-Shabaab may feel it it, it might be able to find local sympathisers much in the same way as they've been able to in Kenya amongst the Somali community in Kenya.
1: Thanks both. Well, I think that's a, a super overview of a, a very complex situation. I think as, as you both pointed out, there are clearly some trends that we'll be looking at quite closely in the coming weeks and months. Clearly this has broader implications beyond Somalia into obviously two, two areas that you've highlighted there in, in Kenya and Ethiopia. So certainly one to watch. So thank you very much Ben and Edie for that. We will now hand over to our MENA analyst, Anastasia
0: Chism, who will talk us through some of the key events to watch in the coming week. Between 22nd of April and 1st of May, Israel will close Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem's Old City to Jewish groups. The moves aimed at quelling tensions with Muslim worshippers through the end of Ramadan is likely to be accompanied by a strengthened security posture. Nevertheless, the area will remain a flashpoint for further clashes in the coming weeks amid persistent tensions. In Europe, on the 24th of April, voters in France will be casting their ballots in support via the president Emmanuel Macron or right-wing opposition candidate Marie Le Pen. Opinion polls indicate that Macron is likely to win his bid for a second term. However, there has been an unprecedented surge in support for far-right candidates, primarily Le Pen, that signals widening political polarisation and an increase in ethno-religious tensions. In the less likely event that Lupin wins her bid for presidency, the country will face heightened policy risks and an increased likelihood of domestic unrest. Also on 24th of April, Georgia's breakaway republic of South Ossetia is holding its second round of presidential elections. After the period is complete, authorities hope to hold a referendum on joining Russia, which Moscow could accept. This would threaten to bring about a constitutional crisis in Georgia, elevating regional tensions and driving domestic instability. Meanwhile in the Middle East, Coptic Christians will be celebrating the Easter holiday in Egypt, with the government planning to strengthen its security posture ahead of and during the holiday to mitigate the threat posed by militant groups, including the Islamic State to Coptic minority. Measures are likely to include additional checkpoints and security personnel in the vicinity of churches and religious sites, as well as major Coptic neighbourhoods.
1: Well, thank you very much for that, Anastasia. And thank you very much again, Ben and Izzy, for that super discussion. If you do have any questions or you want to get in touch with any of the analysts, please do so at info at civiline.co.uk. And we look forward to speaking to you again soon.